Uh, let's pray as we come to read Exodus 17. Uh, our Father, uh, we know from the book of Proverbs that every word of yours is flawless. Uh, and yet, at times, we treat it with disdain. Uh, we treat uh, it as uh, Jehoiakim did, ripping, tearing, burning, uh, throwing your words away. Uh, instead, let us be like Josiah, who, when he found it, realized this, uh, this needs to reform me. And not only me, but everybody else. And we pray that by your grace and through your spirit, our experience might be of the latter. Let us be like Josiah in response to your flawless words. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So Exodus chapter 17, reading from verse 8. So the context-wise, this is, of course, Israel already delivered from cha in chapter 15 from uh, Pharaoh's army, and now they're in these initial stages of wilderness. And here's what we read in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and the people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Okay, I have a question for you to begin. Which of these two images best describes or depicts the Christian life? A walk in a park or running a gauntlet? A walk in a park or running the gauntlet? You know what those pictures mean, of course. A walk in the park. Uh, if something's a walk in the park, you think, that's easy, nice and easy. If you're running a gauntlet, it's difficult. There are obstacles, and you are taking hits. Uh, I grew up in a generation watching a TV show called Gladiators. Anybody remember the show Gladiators? And one of my favorite events on that was called Gauntlet. The aim of the game was, of course, to run from one end to the other in 30 seconds. The only problem was you had guys called Rhino, Hunter, Warrior, Cobra, and Wolf in the way, and they all had great big sticks. So that's why it's called running a gauntlet, right? Now, these contestants, you would see them before Anderson's whistle. They'd be getting themselves ready to go, confidently thinking, I've got the agility, I've got the ability, positive thinking is all that it's going to take. And then the whistle goes, they take off, and bam, they're just floored by the first man mountain uh, that is before them. 
if they managed to scramble past that first person, there was another gladiator waiting, and then another, and then another. When you're running life as a gauntlet, even in that game, the hits just keep on coming. Now, that's what life must have felt like for God's Old Testament people, Israel. They've been rescued from slavery, from their enemy, and crossed over from death to life. They're on their way to the finish line, if you like, of the promised land. And, but it's no walk in the park. It is very much for them like they are running a gauntlet. So far, uh, if you read from chapter 15 onwards, they have scrambled past hunger. They've scrambled past uh, thirst and all with God's help. They're just a few months into their journey then when the Amalekites attack. So the hits, you see, just keep on coming. Now, let me show you why I think this is relevant for us as Christians today uh, before we get into the meat of it. Because the Christian life, the main thing I'm trying to say tonight is the Christian life is no walk in the park. The Bible presents a reality for us that it's much more like running a gauntlet. And we could stop right now we could go around the room, each taking a turn to tell us what life has been like since we set off following the Lord Jesus Christ, and you know what we would hear. Story after story that shows in real life the hits just keep on coming. We face, of course, three snarling gladiatorial opponents. Uh, as the Bible tells us, New Testament tells us, the world, the flesh, the devil are all real. And sometimes the hits come because we have not been careful enough to guard ourselves as we should have. And sometimes we're hit by stuff we could absolutely never have seen coming. But the fact of the matter is from the start line of our Christian faith, en route to the finish line of the new heaven and new earth, the Christian life is like a gauntlet. And here's what we need to see. You will not make it through the Christian life without powerful, effective prayer. You'll not make it through the Christian life, and I won't make it through the Christian life, without powerful and effective prayer. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, well, that's just wonderful, because my prayer life is shocking. So is mine. We all struggle. But I'd say in response to that, I'm not talking about your prayers. I'm talking about his. I'm talking about Christ's intercession. And just as Moses praying on the hill made all the difference in the battlefield in our text in Exodus 17, so Christ praying for us in heaven makes all the difference for us down here on earth. And that is plain biblical fact and my joy to lay out for us to consider this evening. Let me show you where I get this from. Let's look at Exodus 17, 8 to 16. Uh, if you want to take some notes, I'm going to hang it all on two points. Uh, verse, uh, first point is you need to fight. Second point, you need prayer. So number one, you need to fight. Here's why. Because God's people always have an enemy to contend with. For Israel, on this occasion, it was the Amalekites. Verse 8 tells us, if you look with me, 
Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Now, who are these guys and where did they come from? What's their, what's their beef with the Israelites? Well, we know that they are descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob, from whom the Israelites are descended. They are, they're like Israel's long-lost third cousins, really. Uh, there would be family tensions, probably, but we're not sure. The text doesn't say that would be speculation. But what we do know is that they don't have much of a conscience. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, which is the second writing of the law, Moses writes a mini commentary on this event uh, decades later. In 25, Deuteronomy 25, 17, we read, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, and cut off your tail, cut off the tail of those who were lagging behind you. And he did not fear God. So that's why they didn't have a conscience. They were quite happy to attack this train of refugees seeking another land. They were quite happy not just to, not just to attack this train of people, but the tail of this train of people, the weak, the defenseless. The stragglers, the old, the sick, the children, the nursing mums. Now, those are the kinds of enemies that Israel had to contend with as they ran their own gauntlet. But what about us as we apply it to ourselves? We're not, we're not a people marching towards a particular land with borders. How does that apply to us? Well, for us, I mean, for Christians, while enemy attacks can indeed be physical, and there are plenty of places in our world, we understand, where that is the case, our enemies are certainly spiritual. Like Israel, we've been delivered from our captivity. That is a captivity to sin. Colossians 2.15 tells us this, that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. He triumphed over them. We triumph over them in him, Paul says in Colossians 2. But those enemies, Satan and his armies, have not yet surrendered, though they will, he ambushes us, luring us through temptation into his traps, leading us through accusation into a pit, and yes, sometimes physically, by forcing us into a corner. But Ephesians 6:12 describes our experience not as a walk in the park, but as we've said, it's a struggle. But our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's a struggle. It's like running a gauntlet. So what do we need to do? Well, God's people need to ready themselves for the fight. Israel defended themselves on this occasion by use of proper means. Look with me, verse 9, Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Now, I have to say that that's new in Exodus. You know, even at the sea, when Israel was being attacked by Pharaoh's army, God fought for them. They didn't swing a single sword. They've never at any point in this time been told, rise up, get, get training, you know, pump those legs and let's, let's get everybody's metal and let's make some swords. No, they, had, they weren't asked to do any of that because God was the one who was clearly fighting for them. But here in the desert, for the first time, they have to fight. And verse 13 says, Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Now, there's more to it than that. But before we think about Moses' hand in the battle, let's not forget that Christians can therefore defend themselves by the proper means too. 
We gear up, if you like, as they did. Ephesians 6 tells us we put on our armor, defending ourselves and each other, especially weaker brothers and sisters, with gospel truth. We take up our swords, not a physical sword with sharp edges, but a book like this with thin pages, actually. It's no less weak, but in fact, it's stronger than anything. Even as we were thinking about this morning, it is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, as Ephesians 6, verse 17 reminds us. But we gear up, but we also go, to, we go out together. Now, I know we're not a nation state, as I've said, like Israel. We're much more than that, actually. We are a kingdom. We are a family. And we ought to act in that way. Uh, I'm sorry about this. This is the second reference to Scottish rugby today, but this is my last, because I'll not be here next week. Uh, but uh, the Scotland rugby team has this brilliant slogan, which I think would suit any local church, really. Uh, it's as one, right? Maybe that would help us. You know, having more than 15 in the scrum, you know, pulling as one together would, would help us in a rugby a lot. But that's how it's meant to be for a Christian church. That's how it's meant to be for God's people covenanting together to be in membership of a local church pulling in the same direction, fighting the same fight, strengthening one another by the everyday means that God has given us to fight. That's how it's meant to be. Indeed, if we don't gear up and go together, we can find ourselves isolated. That's when we can find ourselves, even as Christians, in this day and age, being, figuratively speaking, the tail. Easy pickings. Because if you detach yourself from the word of God, if we detach ourselves from the life of a local church and good relationships within, we leave ourselves not only isolated, but vulnerable. And I, w I believe God's word says enough about a local church to remind us that that is a dangerous, dangerous thing to do. Let's defend ourselves by the proper means. Because the Christian life is not a walk in the park. It is indeed like running a gauntlet. But that's only half the story, isn't it? I mean, victory in the valley, as we see from our text, wasn't really won on the battlefield, was it? Where was it won? It was won on the hill. And that's why point two is, in verses 9 to 16, you need prayer. One, you need to fight. Two, you need prayer. You need to put effort in but two you're not dependent this isn't dependent this victory is not dependent on all your effort and energy look at what Moses is doing when Joshua goes out to fight verse 9 says tomorrow I'll stand up on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand and what's he doing Moses is interceding for those in battle now interceding is of course just a fancy term for somebody asking for something on someone else's behalf and Moses here is praying for the people of God represented in the army but how do we actually know he's praying? You don't actually hear a word from his mouth, do you? He just says he's going to go up to the top of the hill and stand there with a stick. So it doesn't say he's praying. So how do we know he's praying? Well, by his posture, Jews stand to pray. Uh, Jews pray with their hands raised or palms upward. Psalm 63 tells us that. We don't hear any words here, but we know he is praying he is pleading but what is he 
praying and pleading for? Well, the answer is God's power. How do we know that? By, the, by what's in his hands. What is in his hands? It's the staff of God. And throughout this book of Exodus, it has been a symbol of God's power. It's not the first time this staff has made an appearance in the hand of Moses. This staff in chapter 3 turned into a snake. In chapter 9 and chapter 10, triggered several plagues. Chapter 14, divided an entire body of water. And then chapter 17, even immediately preceding this text we're looking at tonight, caused water to spring from a rock. All magnificent demonstrations of the power of God. So Moses' actions are an unmistakable sign of dependence upon God to win the battle. He's raising his hands to pray, and his prayer is a pleading of God's power in the fight. And that's what prayer is, really. It is an acknowledgement of our need, that we can do nothing about this. It's an acknowledgement of his power, that he can do something about it. That's why we need to, we need prayer. Now, someone is, uh, just, I can't remember who it was, and I googled it, and I can't find it, but someone has uh, uh, described prayer as grasping the arm of God's omnipotence. If you know who said that afterwards, tell me who it was so I can write it in there. It wasn't me. I don't have uh, the intelligence to come up with clever things like that. <laughs> but this is what Moses is doing as he prays. He's laying his hand uh, on the power of God in heaven and asking for that power to be made known on earth. In fact, I'm convinced that that's what verse 16 is all about. It's, in the original Hebrew, it's actually very tricky to translate. Some translations would say, and there's a footnote in there for you to demonstrate this. It says, you know, hands were lifted against the throne, suggesting that it's actually the Amalekites' hands that are in view their hands, the Amalekites' hands, were against the throne of God. But the ESV and other translations like the CSV translate it as a hand upon the throne of the Lord. That is, it's Moses' hand that's in view. Moses' hand was upon or touching the God's throne in prayer. And that makes much more sense textually. Because no Amalekite hands are mentioned at all in the text. But Moses' hands are mentioned six times. And in any case, it worked. Verse 11, whenever Moses held up his hands, Israel prevailed. His prayers were powerful and effective. The problem was, Moses was unable to maintain his prayerful posture. That's obvious from the text itself. He gets tired. His arms get weary. You understand this, don't you? I don't know, I don't know if you were the kid in class who, whenever the teacher asked a question, you put your hand up and the teacher would say, you, someone else, uh, what do you think the answer is? And you're still there like, and then maybe they say, no, that's not right, let's go over here. What about you? And you're still in the middle here going, you know, and the teacher just, obviously, because you're a cheeky little monkey, perhaps, you know, they're just avoiding <laughs> including you in the conversation. And then what do you end up doing? Even right now, my arm is actually starting to tingle a little bit, so it's getting tired. What do you do? You start to use the other hand, don't you? You give it some support. And then what do you do if you have to hold it up for a bit longer? You end up putting your head down and just rocking yourself because actually the pain, and then you start to shake it out afterwards. You know it's sore for him. So what does he do? He loses his ability to keep that plea 
for God's power in the fight up there. And it makes a difference in what's happening in the field. Look with me, verse 12. He needed, therefore, support. Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. His friends got him a chair and propped up his hands. And it's just as well they did, because verse 11b, look with me, whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Now, do you know what this shows us? It says that we need more than human help in the fight. Like, human help is wonderful. Praying friends are a massive blessing to us. And praying churches, even more. People who bear us up before God, what an absolute joy and blessing that is to us. We'll never know how much of a blessing that is to us until glory. But if we're dependent on people who are just as weak as one of the most strongest men that we can see in God's word, with the strongest faith, Moses. If we're dependent on people who are just as weak as Moses, people who tire, people who forget, people who sin, people like us, we are not going to make it in the fight. We're not going to make it through this Christian life. We will not make it through the Christian life without powerful, effective prayer. The good news is, friends, is that Jesus is interceding for us. As we began our service, we looked at this from Hebrews 7. Jesus is the one who is praying for us, mediating, pleading God's power for the fight, for the gauntlet that we run on our behalf, moment by moment. Like Moses with Joshua, he sends us out to fight. Not with swords, but as missionaries as we were singing even this morning, uh, to love captive souls and rage against their captor. How? By being like crazy and fighting people? No, don't be ridiculous. By loving people enough to proclaim the good news of the gospel to everybody we come into contact with. By proclaiming the good news of Christ's death and his resurrection and salvation for sinners through faith and repentance. But Jesus also sends us out to fight not just as missionaries, but as members in one another's lives, to love one another, to rush to protect the family of God when attacked by all kinds of things. Doubt, guilt, shame, pride, blatant sin, subtle sin, all kinds of sin. And get this, friends. Like Jesus, like Moses, intercedes for us. He asks for things on our behalf all the time. And right now, as the battle rages on and in our own lives, the hits just keep on coming. He is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. As Hebrews 7 tells us, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
Wow, there's a memory verse for you right there. If the prayers of Moses, a mere man with a staff in his hands, were powerful and effective on the battlefield, how much more, friends, the prayers of Jesus, the God-man with scars on his hands, be powerful and effective in the battles that we face day by day? Now, you might be saying worriedly, but what if he stops praying or gets weak like Moses? Look again at Hebrews 7.25. There is a reason why his resurrection and his continual intercession is emphasized. The son is eternal. He always lives to intercede. Death cannot stop him. They tried that once. Didn't work. Tiredness doesn't bother him. It is in his nature that which is said of the Godhead in Isaiah 40, he will not grow tired or weary. That's why it says he is able to save completely because he prays, not in addition to his cross work, but still his sustaining grace his sustained prayers sustains us, friends. And because he prays, our faith will not fail us. Same as he prayed for Simon. Simon, Simon, Satan is asked to sift you like wheat. But because Jesus prays, what happens? Yeah, you'll not fall. When you, re when you return, strengthen your brothers, he says. Because he prays, Satan can't condemn us. The one who declared us not guilty is at the right hand of the throne of God interceding for us, as Romans 8, 33 and 34 remind us. And because he prays, we can have the utmost confidence that the enemies will be blotted out, like the Amalekites, whose conscienceless assault on the weak ones of Israel's tale, which was an, an act of great evil, according to verse 14. You know, when God says, write this down so everyone remembers, I will be at war with them until the day I finally blot them out. They're going to be gone without a trace. Even that in itself is a wonderful promise. Because when the hits just keep on coming, for God's people, when trial or temptation seek to wring the life out of us, when we feel crushed by the weight of our own guilt, or when Satan says of you, just give up, you're absolutely worthless. We can remember this, before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads. For me, for you. That's the joy of this. So look to him, friends. Remember his intercession. In fact, look to him the way the Israelites looked to a flag, to that staff in God's hand, if you like, as a banner. That's what this banner stuff is all about. They, they look the way a soldier looks to the banner of his commander. Moses says, the Lord is your banner, okay, which means look to him. Verse 15, Moses builds an altar in light of the victory of God's people and says, remember this, Amalek, the enemy is going to be blotted out, and let's build an altar and call it, the Lord is my banner. Now, the banner he has in mind is not the kind of banner that pops up on your laptop, cursed things. Uh, it, it's not even the kind of thing that people trail behind a plane to make a, a message known. Now, he's talking about a military banner. 
a, a flag that bears a military symbol. A flag that's used on the battlefield back then to signal the troops in the field. So that if you're in the heat of the battle, you can look to your banner for instruction, advance, or retreat, whatever has been signaled. Or you can look to your banner for inspiration. You know, this is who you're fighting for. Look at your nation's ensign or something like that. And as long as that banner was flying, the battle was not lost. So what banner did Joshua and his makeshift army have to look to? What does the text tell us? It's not a flag. It's a staff. A staff that, as we've already seen in Exodus, is the symbol of God's omnipotence. His incredible power. It's constantly raised above the battlefield. So that however those troops in the battle felt like things were going, they could look up to that hill and see the staff raised aloft and know God is on our side. The Lord indeed himself is, was their banner and is indeed ours. And my encouragement for us tonight from this text, friends, is that we should do the same with Christ. We look to him. Not to a staff, but to him, the eternal son, as our banner. We can look to him for instruction. We can look to him for inspiration. And as long as he, our banner, is flying, if you like, the victory is ours. And he always lives, so victory is certain for us. Even though it's hard, even though it feels like a gauntlet. Victory is ours. So what do we look to in the heat of battle? Think about what it's like for you and the things you've struggled with. Is Christ the one that we look to? Or do we look for help in other places? I think we tend to look around an awful lot when the hits come. We look around in despair, not really knowing where to turn from help when all the while there's help's extended to us. Or we look around and retreat to, to things like career or to alcohol or to relationships, to any kind of thing that, that serves as a kind of anesthetic to the struggle that we're facing. Oh, that's just daft. Because those things do not console. It's like a plaster on a broken leg. It's futile. No, we need to look up more. To look to Christ. To consider him through the pages of the Bible. To speak about him more and more with one another. And that's how we see afresh the greatness of his love and his cross. The greatness of his power and his resurrection. And get fresh juice, fresh zeal for running the gauntlet. So that even if you do make it past one of these gladiators, real life gladiators that we experience in life, like grief or sin, whatever it is, that we look to him, even weary in the fight, we look to the one who is our banner and we just get up and we just resolve that if sin was involved, his grace is enough. 
And if we feel weak, well, that's just the way he likes us. Because then we're dependent on him and he gives us the energy to labor and toil and do what he calls us to do. And I would say that if we are, if we, even in our weariness and our difficulty in our Christian life, find ourselves at any point retreating from the fight, in other words, backing away from the faith, attending just two out of four on a Sunday in a month, distancing ourselves from God's people and those relationships, if we are retreating from the fight, look to the banner and get back in it. And if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, if you have not believed in Jesus who saves and pleads God's power on our behalf, then this text says you're on the wrong side of the battle. God says in his dealings with the Amalekites, if you're not for me, you're against me. And if, like the Amalekites, you have no fear of God, as Deuteronomy 25 says, no reverence for him, then God's word says that your end will be like theirs. Blotted out. What a, what a phrase, what a term, what a picture. Like, they're just, they were just a spillage. But God blots them out. All their efforts, all their energies, in the end, worthless. Who's memorialized in the text? The Lord. Who's forgotten in the text? The Amalekites. The good news for people like us is that Jesus loves defectors. He loves people who were once against him and forgives those who would have denied him. He loves to send his troops, believers like the members of this church, armed with love and words in their mouths to turn enemies into friends. Meaning that if you turn in faith to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that you too can rally to him as your banner and find help in running your own race, your own gauntlet in this life en route to that finish line. Jesus died to open the way and said so himself. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So the Christian life is no walk in the park. Realistically, it's like running a gauntlet. We will not make it through the Christian life without powerful, effective prayer. But praise God, the Lord we look to, our banner, Jesus Christ himself, prays. Good news, friends. Let's pray. Let's bow our heads and let's take a moment to respond in the quietness, our own prayers, 
Maybe if you're here tonight, you're not a Christian, then you can confess your sin to him right in this moment and say you believe. If you're struggling with suffering, acknowledge those things before him. If your sin is what you're fighting against, confess it. He is faithful and just to cleanse, forgive, and purify and make us righteous. Our Father, we thank you that the experience of the Christian life is not something that's presented before us sugar-coated. But very realistically, we are told that following Christ, though utterly wonderful, will still in this life be difficult. We always have enemies, enemies of yours, but we praise you that in you we have the victory. And we pray that you would help us in the, the myriad and the variety of struggles that we ourselves face in our daily walk and in our lives with you. That you would help us to reflect on the gospel that saves Christ's past work and what it achieved for us. But also on his current intercession for us as a gift of grace that comes with that salvation so that we might look to him as our banner and remember the pleas that he makes as our advocate when our sin condemns us or when the evil one accuses and our strength when ours fails, when weariness or even blatant willful sin might keep us from you or might floor us in our faith. Help us to look together to the sun, to be strengthened, to get back in the fight and realize we're not in this by ourselves. We pray that you would increase our faith and strengthen our resolve and even through our weakness display his might so that many, many, many more may believe in him for themselves. We ask it in the name of Jesus, our banner. Amen.